Good morning. It's good to see you guys this morning. Let's turn to the scriptures, uh, Revelation chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. After this, I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of great of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged her on avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more, they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the twenty four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him but he said to me you must not do that i am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of jesus worship god for the testimony of jesus is the spirit of prophecy uh, turn with me in your bibles to ephesians chapter 5 we'll be looking at verses 26 and 27 ephesians chapter 5 verses 26 and 27 as we continue looking at the love of Jesus Christ, that which Paul is laying out here for husbands as the model that they are to follow in loving their wives. And, of course, then as they model that for their wives and their family, then you wives and children, you likewise will follow this same pattern of love, the love of Christ. And so we're going to talk today about what is the aim of Christ's love. We'll seek to answer that question. What is the aim of Christ's love? So I want to ask you uh, first, does Christ love individual people, individual believers, or does he love the church collectively? Does he love individual believers, or does he love the church collectively? Well, the answer is both. A trick question, I know. But some people would disagree with that. They say... That here in Ephesians 5.25, when it says Christ loved the church, that's the only place in the Bible that actually says that. And they say because that's the only place in the Bible that actually says Christ loved the church, then that phrase is suspect. And they say things like, well, you know, Paul probably didn't write this. And they may say, so we can't trust it. Well, use caution when someone says that we can't trust something in the Bible just because it only shows up once. How many times does God have to say something in the Bible before it's true? Okay, so be careful. You know, if ever if someone says, "Well, we can't can't go with that because it only happens one time in the Bible," um, if God said it, it only takes once, right? Well, is it important to even think about this, to worry about this? So what if we say, okay, well, there's a little bit of debate about it, so why don't we just, you know, we'll just skip it and move on to something else. No, this is important. We need to think about what is going on here. This is an important truth, and it ties in with other uh, biblical truths that we'll be looking at somewhat today. So it's not like the Bible doesn't teach Christ loves the church, just because this is the only place that says that specifically, there are plenty of other places that say that, that teach us that, if you will, if indirectly. See, Christ does love individuals, and he sanctifies, but he also loves the church, and he sanctifies her as well.
as well. We just read a few minutes ago in, in Revelation that the church, the bride of Christ, will one day be made ready for her bride. So we saw in Revelation just recently in, in uh, chapter 9 that Jared read for us, and we also see it in chapter 21, that we have this wonderful event that those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ, that we have to look forward to, the marriage supper of the Lamb, when we as the bride of Christ will actually be, if you will, and of course this is spiritually speaking, uh, married to our bridegroom. Right now we are um, His bride. We're not yet um, we're betrothed, as we're going to see in a little bit, to Him. And at after that supper... Jesus will live forever with his bride. Individually, we are his holy people, but collectively, we are his holy bride. And so this is one of the pictures that the Bible gives us about the relationship between Jesus and his people, this of bride. So we've seen things already in Ephesians like, you know, we are his body, we are his church, and here we see we are his bride. Years ago, commentator B.F. Westcott pointed out in his commentary on Ephesians that Christ didn't love the church because she was perfectly lovable. He said that Christ loved the church to make her lovable. Did you hear that? He loved the church in order to make her lovable. He didn't look out there for a bride that was already perfect for what he wanted. He had to make us lovable. And so in Ephesians 5.25, we, after Paul tells husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, he then takes us into verses 26 and 27 to explain how it is that Christ does make the church, makes us lovable, makes us lovely, that is, in the eyes of Christ. And we're going to learn here an, an important aspect of godly love. And, and so as Paul is laying this groundwork for husbands about how to love your wives, as we, we've said many times, but we're going to see this even more and maybe on a deeper level, that your love for your wife isn't just a warm feeling. You know, there are times where we're talking with couples and you know, and the husband will say, well, you know, I love my wife. And what he means by that is that he has these these warm feelings for her. Okay, <clears throat> that's not wrong. It's just that's not the essence of biblical love. Now, the feelings will often, not always, often accompany biblical love. But that isn't the essence of biblical love. You see, godly love doesn't merely feel. Godly love acts. But we, we recognize that godly love, that love is the motive behind what Christ has done and what we should do. But is it only the motive? Is that the only, the only aspect of love, that it is the motive? So yes, it's, love is Christ's motive in saving us. But his love moves him to act to meet our greatest need. You see, it's not only the motive behind Him saving us, but it's also the active power that actually does save us. Okay? So it's not just that it moved Him, but it was actually Him, it, it was His love that saved us. Now, we're, there's, there's more that goes into that, right? And we'll, we'll talk about that a bit. It was the active power to accomplish the desired end. What did he want to accomplish? His love is what moved him and what actually accomplished that end. And so what we'll talk about today is this. Christ's love pursues the sanctification of his church. Christ's love pursues the sanctification of his church. Remember, we've said that if you want a really short, in a nutshell, uh, definition of godly love, agape... It is giving, okay? Godly love gives. It serves, you know. For God so loved the world that he, what? Gave, right? Other verses do the same thing. 
that's that active power aspect of it. And so that's why I use the word pursue. So Christ's love pursues the sanctification of his church. It doesn't just want it. It doesn't just desire the sanctification of his church. His love actually, if you will, engages and accomplishes it. In his book, Christ Crucified, Stephen Charnock brings out this active aspect of godly love. He called Christ's love the first spring of all the actions of Christ towards us. And the passion, so his love is the passion of Christ for us. So hearing that, you might think, okay, well, we're talking motive there, right? So he goes on on the next page to show that there's more going on. He says, love excited him. Now, not in the sense that we use that word, excited, you know, it's just emotions. That's not the way he's as Puritan using that word. It means that it moved him to action. You see, it prompted him to act. That's what he means by love excited him. Love prepared him. Love sent him. Love offered him. And so you see the idea, and he brings it out here. What Paul is talking about is that love acts. It doesn't just feel. It's not just the motive, although it is the motive. It also acts. So let's look at how Paul presents this active aspect of Christ's love for his church. So uh, let's look at our text again. We'll back up to verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. So what is Christ's aim in loving us? Why did he love us? Why did he set his love on us? And so Paul is going to present Christ's purpose with three Henna clauses, it's a Greek word, so if you're, you're like, okay, I don't know what a henna is, you know, and then it's a Greek word, it means that, or in order that, and there's three of these in this passage. And so on the next slide, you'll see, I tried to illustrate the structure of this passage so that you can kind of grasp what where we're going with this and what Paul's doing. So first, you see that Christ loved the church, but then ask why. Why did he love the church? Okay, so then the, that first henna clause, that, or in order that, he might sanctify her. So he loved her so that he could sanctify her. You see? And so that's what, what his love is doing here. It's accomplishing this the sanctification of his church. And then... They're going to be those those second and third henna clauses are, are two parallel clauses there that show why did he sanctify her? Why did he set her apart? So he loved her. Why? So he could set her apart. Why? Two reasons. One, you'll see that he might present her glorious. And then two, that she would share his character. That she would share his character. So we'll come back to this, but this kind of gives you a picturesque, you know, pictorial game plan for the understanding this. And this isn't easy. You know, some of these passages, you, it's kind of easy to understand more or less, but trying to understand the structure of it, you know, are all three of these parallel or is it, you know, one to the next to the next? And, you know, you, that matters. And so that's why we're trying to uh, illustrate that for you here. Okay, so first... Christ loved the church so that he could set her apart to God. Verse 26, Christ loved the church so that he could set her apart to God. Let's look again at that verse. So he loved her, now verse 26, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. As I said before, Jesus loves his church too much to leave her in her sin. He's going to do whatever it takes to free his church from her sin. MacArthur calls it purifying love. I think that's a good way to to describe the, the, the quality of love we're talking about here. It's purifying love. 
In love, Christ gave Himself up for the church so that He could sanctify her. This word sanctify, uh, it's the verb form of holy. Uh, It's actually, the verb form is rare outside of the Bible, as you could imagine, right? The basic idea in it is to set something apart, to set something aside, to consecrate something or someone to God, or to consecrate someone or something to the service of God. Okay, so it has that idea of especially to set apart and to set apart unto God when it's used in Scripture. So the idea here is that Christ died in order to set the church apart to God. You see, think about it, that that we as the church, not just GBC, but the whole church throughout all the ages, the, the church, capital C, if you will, he's setting us apart or he has set us apart to God. But when Scripture talks about this holiness, it's not just the idea of being set apart. You see, there's a certain character that has to go with that. As you think about it, if we are going to be set apart to a holy God, then we're going to have to be like him, right? Think about if you ever wrestle with the book of Leviticus, you know, in your Bible reading plan and you're like, oh, my, you know, you're trying to trudge through that. You know, you're like, "Okay, what do I what do I do with this? Well, as a New Testament believer, what you should do with it is to understand why it was given to them. So you had, you know, Exodus happens. God leads the people out of the out of Egypt. And they're, they're now in the wilderness, and, and he says, okay, I want you to set the camp up this way, and guess where God's going to be? Right in the middle. Okay. So, you have a sinful people, they prove that plenty of times, right? Just like we do. And you have a holy God right in your midst. They're like, oh my. And think about the laws. Okay, if you do this, you know, punishment, you know, discipline. Do this, you know, this happens. And and in the you you when you see the tabernacle and you see that pillar of cloud or pillar of fire, and that reminds you he is a holy God. And as Hebrews reminds us, you know, he, you know, our God is a consuming fire. And and so you think about. Okay, there's a holy God living in the midst of a very unholy people. What is going to stop him from breaking out and just consuming the whole camp? Well, that's where Leviticus comes in. This is how, in that day, sinners live with a holy God. Okay? Now, we're in the New Covenant. We still have to obey. We have laws, but those are now written in our heart, and we must obey those, and that is how we live with a holy God. He is now in our hearts. It's even closer than it was for the Israelites. And so it it matters at least as much and maybe more because he's inside. You know, don't ever think that, oh, okay, well, you know, I can just, first John 1, 9, you know, oh, sorry, God, you know, I sinned and move on and think nothing of it. No, not at all. You have to take it seriously. You have a holy God living inside of you. So, if you are set apart unto this holy God, you're going to need a character like His. You're going to need to be like Him. And so, we, we call this holiness. It is a set-apartness. You know, it's kind of not an exact grammatical way to talk, but you get the idea. It's a set-apartness. You see, we're set apart from the world. We're set apart to God. So we shouldn't be like the world, and we should be like God. Okay, So that's where it, it is a holiness. It is character that is like God. And here, he's talking about how this idea of sanctification, holiness, set-apartness applies to the church collectively. Okay? Well, so much of what I'm going to say today is true of us individually. We're talking about corporately. Now, the, the individual, it, it, he does these things for both the individual believer and for his church. But we're talking primarily about the church here in this passage. You see, Christ is not seeking to have this really large group of 
holy individuals. Have you thought about that ever? He doesn't want just a, you know, an innumerable host of holy individuals. He wants us to be holy, not in our individual lives. Some Christians think, you know, we we joke sometimes about, you know, they want to be the Lone Ranger Christian. You know, I can just kind of be on my own and I don't need anybody and I don't have to go to church. Okay, well, you know, that's wrong and that's clearly wrong. But sometimes we're not too far from that. Because God cares about, Christ cares about the interactions between each one of us. All of those interconnected ways that we touch one another. He wants us to be holy in our interconnectedness, to be holy in our interactions, to be holy in our relationships, to be holy at every touch point between each one of us. And you think about it, okay... So there's however many people here, and you've got all of these, you know, well over a hundred touch points. Okay? Yes, he wants you, us, to be holy in all of those touch points. Well, that's kind of, that's a tall order, isn't it? And that's why Christ is the one who's doing it. That's why the one another's are so important. You read through the New Testament, you read over and again you know, love one another and all the other one another's, and they are so important. Normally, in our discussions, when we talk about the word sanctification, we, we're, we're talking about it on the individual level. So, you know, maybe in discipleship or counseling, we're, we're encouraging someone, and we're talking about them in their walk with the Lord, their sanctification. But... There's an additional layer, if you will, of sanctification that is also required, also necessary. If each one of us lived in our own cave, you know, you go back to some of the hermits in the past, you know, they they, like, it's hard living with Christians, you know. Well, it is, right? Okay. And so I'm just going to live in a cave. But if each one of us could, we could find our own cave and we never had to talk to anybody and there's enough space between all of our caves so we never even had to see each other, much less relate to each other. And you say, okay, I'm going to work on being godly. So there's a whole lot of problems with it. I'm not going to go into all those. But the biggest problem is you take yourself with you when you go to the cave, right? Okay. But if we were to try that, and never interacted with each other, essential aspects of sanctification would not happen. Essential aspects of sanctification would not happen. We must be in close contact with each other so that Christ can sanctify His church as a whole. See, He cares about how you relate to each other, how you interact with each other. That is... a a key aspect to him sanctifying his church. He's not, when he, when he talks about he's setting his church aside, he's sanctifying his church, he's not just thinking in terms of, okay, I'm going to sanctify that Christian and that Christian and that Christian and that Christian as if they're all distinct individuals only. They're also interconnected individuals and he is sanctifying the interconnectedness. And and so we have to keep that in mind as we walk through this. This is what he's Paul's talking about. So how is this sanctification accomplished? Well, look again at verse 26. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. <clears throat> so what, what's going on here, there, we're, we're going to talk about it in, in two aspects of sanctification. Because on the one hand, this, this setting apart, this sanctification of the church has already happened. And he uses a past tense here. It's something that has already happened. And that is positional sanctification. We've already been set apart to God. So in the plan of God, in the mind of God, he has already set his church apart by the work of Christ, the love of Christ. He has set 
the church apart to himself. Jesus said in John fifteen three, talking to the disciples, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. And I kind of hold on to that word. We're going to come back to it, right? Paul said that Jesus gave himself for us that he might purify for himself a people for his own possession, Titus 2.14. So you see, there's a sense in which the positional, this is our position in Christ, we have been, as a church, set apart, and this is true individually too, but we've been set apart unto Christ, unto God. That, that is something that happens once, if you will. On the other hand, there is this aspect of progressive sanctification. That's what we usually talk about when we talk about sanctification. Okay? It is something that is ongoing. Jesus prayed to his Father in John seventeen seventeen, Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Paul called believers... In 2 Corinthians 7, 1, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So you see in those those verses, you've got this aspect of a, a progressive sanctification. Okay. So when we were saved, we or when we're saved, we're set apart to God. Positionally, we're sanctified. But for the rest of our life, we're being sanctified progressively. And again, think on the individual level, but also on the corporate level. Okay? When we talk about the corporate level, the moral cleansing of Christ's church happened when he gave his life for her. He set her apart unto himself. But that moral cleansing is being worked out day by day, generation by generation in his church. Okay, so that that's the progressive element. So positionally, he has already set his church aside or set her apart unto himself. But that positional sanctification is now being worked out in the experience, in the lives of his people and here in the experience of his church, the life of his church. And so he says here that this cleansing happens by the washing of water. Now, washing just simply means it refers to a bath or a place where you bathe. And many people, they see this, and washing of water, and it makes them think of, oh, baptism. And so they say, and a lot of commentators will say that this is talking about baptism. But that can't be, for at least two reasons. One... He's talking about the church here, not individuals. So you don't baptize a church. Okay, you baptize individuals. Okay. Second, baptism doesn't wash away sin. Right? Baptism doesn't wash away sin. This is not talking about baptism. But, baptism is a picture of this. Okay? Baptism is a picture of what we're talking about here, this spiritual moral cleansing that happens at redemption. So when we are baptized, somebody is saved, they, we have them give their testimony at church, and then we go out and we baptize them. And what that is is it's a picture of different things. But one of the things that it is showing is that they have been washed by the blood of Christ. When they put their trust in Christ, they were washed as Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 6. Now, the, the, the picture here for Paul isn't so much baptism. It probably is uh, an ancient ceremony, a ritual that they had that was common among the Jews and the Greeks, and it was this ritual called a bridal bath. Uh, that's where it was, it was a ritual really where the, the bride would make herself ready for her wedding. Okay. God used this imagery in Ezekiel 16 where he had Israel bathed and adorned before taking her in marriage. As I mentioned, 1 Corinthians 6.11, Paul said that believers were washed, sanctified 
you see. So when we came to trust in Christ, we were washed from our sins. In Titus 3, 5, Paul spoke of the washing of regeneration. See, Christ spiritually cleanses his bride. He cleanses individual Christians, but he also cleanses his bride. Okay. The new covenant promises that God will cleanse his people. Turn back with me to Ezekiel 36. So, a little ways back into the Old Testament. Ezekiel chapter 36. So, you have a number of passages that tell us about the new covenant. Uh, the primary ones, Ezekiel 36, Jeremiah 31, Hebrews 8 through 10. So here in Ezekiel 36 is very descriptive for us about this, this idea of the washing and the water, if you will. God speaking through Ezekiel about this new covenant. The promise he gives, verse 25, Ezekiel 36, 25. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Similarly, in Hebrews 10.22, the writer there says that we have had our hearts sprinkled clean. You see, he's picking up that imagery, the, the language from Ezekiel 36. We've had our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And so what he's talking about here is that the water is, is actually the Word, and Paul calls that out here. It's the Word of God. <clears throat> so that's the cleansing. Water is a picture of the cleansing power of God's Word. You, know, you think about, okay, so you're, you're outside working in the yard and you get all just filthy and you just can't wait to get in and take a bath or a shower. And, the, and it's the water that gets all that grime off, right? And so water is a picture of the cleansing power of God's Word. So let's talk about that, um, the Greek for word, if you will. Uh, you know, we typically think of logos, which is really common, but here it's actually rhema. And, and so... They're basically synonyms. There's a little bit of difference between them, but they're used interchangeably also, so we don't want to make too much of that. In in the New Testament, rhema is almost always used for God's Word. And as it does here in other passages, it's talking about God's Word in the Gospel. So he's talking about the, the Gospel, the message of the Gospel here, Okay, when he talks about God's Word washing us. So, using the word of his gospel, Jesus washes his church. Using the word of the gospel, Jesus washes his church. And you think about, there's that initial um, gospel washing when you put your trust in Christ. That's what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 6.11. You know, such were some of you, remember. And he lists off all those sins. And then he says, but you were washed. You were sanctified, right? So, <clears throat> there's that initial washing that happens by the gospel. But when we talk about applying the gospel to ourselves, even after we've been saved, there's that continual washing uh, with where God's word in the gospel washes us from our sins and cleanses us from our unrighteousness. And so, you think about 1 John 1, nine again that I referred to earlier. You know, that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and then to what? Cleanse you from every unrighteousness, all unrighteousness, right? There's that washing. And that's that's the progressive aspect of this. Think back to, in our study that we did just before this, about the role of men and women, we went back to the foundational chapters, Genesis 1 through 3, and you remember in Genesis 3 where we talked about the fall, right? And what had happened there. And we pointed out that Adam, God had appointed Adam to lead his wife. He, he taught Adam. Then he created Eve. And then he says, okay, you have a responsibility now to teach her. 
Okay? And, and to lead her. But when the serpent came, and apparently Adam was right there, it sounds like, he didn't say a word. Eve's talking to the serpent. Adam's saying nothing. He should have spoken up to protect his wife. And he should have led her away from sin. But he didn't. He failed. But Jesus, as the second Adam, has spoken. And he successfully deals with his wife's sin. In the gospel, he has set his wife, his bride, which is not his wife, he has his bride apart unto himself. And now, and he's working on working that out in us so that we are being sanctified as a church and as individuals. Okay, before we jump into the next point, so I want to show you again the slide with the structure. Okay, so Christ loved the church. Why? That he might set her apart. Now we have to answer, why did he set her apart? And remember those, those two parallel ideas. The first is that he might present her glorious. And so that takes us to point number two. Christ set her apart, the church, apart so he can present her glorious. Look at the first part of verse 27, Ephesians five twenty-seven, And another henna clause here, right? That in order that he might present to himself the church in all her glory. So he set her apart so he could present her glorious. And in the first century, along with that bridal bath idea, is that the bride would make herself ready, and then she would come out to to the people and, and her bridegroom, and then her bridegroom would take her then and present her to his father. Now, why, you know, is it like, okay, you know, is she okay, Dad, you know, or more likely, you know, we want your blessings and you know, something like that. Okay, so that's the way it would work. So she'd make herself ready, and then the bridegroom would take her to his dad, and he would present her to his dad. And, and so that's not at all what happens here. And so, you know, the Jews and the Greeks would have kind of gotten this, and heard, like, oh, wait, okay, this is different. You see, what happens here is that she doesn't make herself ready. Now, yes, there's a part in which, and Revelation talks about that. So, yes, we, we're not just sitting back, right? But it's actually Christ who is making her ready. He makes his bride ready, okay? And this is, this, this is mind-blowing, he presents her not to his father. Wow. He presents her to himself. Think about that. Hmm. Why did Jesus not present her to his father? We're not sure exactly, but Jesus is God. He doesn't have, hey, father, is this, you know, is she okay? Jesus is God. He's He makes her ready and then he presents her to himself. He's God. And there's, this is an aspect of his deity that comes out. And it's one of those indirect ways that just reminds us that Jesus is God. Paul told the Corinthian church, I betrothed you, the church, to one husband, that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. 2 Corinthians 11.2 So, who is it that the church is made up of? Us, right? Disasters, right? Sinful disasters, every one of us, okay? And if you don't think so, then your disaster is arrogant pride, okay? Right? <clears throat> so, it's not just, you know, the ones we always think of, you know, those those outward sins. But there is the, you know, arrogant pride. There is... The legalism, there is, you know, uh, I fear man instead of God. Uh, and along with all this anxiety and worry, I just don't trust God. I have to trust myself. All those kinds of, some of those, you can't see those. But if they're true of you, you know they are there. Or he will reveal them to you. So that's what the church is made of. 
All of us. Wicked sinners. But, Jesus cleanses His bride so that she will be to Him a pure virgin. Let that sink in. You know, we're talking, humanly speaking, you don't undo that, right? But Jesus does. It's, and this is not a mind game that he's playing with himself. It's like, okay, I, I know that she's despicable, my church. But I'm going to just kind of turn a blind eye and pretend that she's a pure virgin. No, she will be to him. She will really be, we really will be to Christ a pure virgin. Now, that gives us hope, doesn't it? Because I know in this life right now, we wrestle. And, and, and we, like Paul says in Romans, you know, those sins of which we are still now ashamed. And, and you know, there are times where they, they almost get the best of you. And you think about, oh, you know, Jesus, how could you love me? And you're going to have me for all eternity. I'm so sorry, Lord. And he's like, what are you talking about? I am going to cleanse you in such a way that you will really be, if you were talking in this, this concept, a pure virgin. You're going to be holy to me. And it's not a mind game. You really will be holy. That's beautiful to think about the love of Christ. That, that, that is what His love is driving Him to. That is what His love is accomplishing. And so... In, in 2 Corinthians 7, 1, he, ta- he uses that word, or, or sorry, uh, um, 11, 2, a pure virgin. Here, he says the church in all her glory. He's going to present the church to himself in all her glory. In other words, he's going to present her to himself glorious. Now, I don't know about you. Just think about it. I mean, if you, you know, look around, look in a mirror, right? We are not glorious. Okay, we're, we're a long ways from that. But it won't always be that way. Praise the Lord. I am so glad that one day you and I will be able to stand before the Lord like, not, oh Lord, we're, we're horrible, wicked sinners, you know, depart from us. We're going to be blown away by the fact that we're going to, wow, hey, wow, Jared, you're holy, man, you know. And he's going to say, John, I'm even more impressed that you're holy now, you know, right? That's 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 the love of Christ in action. What it does, it makes us as the church glorious. What does that mean? We'll look at verse 27 again. That he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing. A spot referred to a stain. So you think about it, if you ever get blood on your clothes. If you don't deal with it right away, guess what happens? It's permanent, right? It's a stain. Okay, it's that kind of thing he's talking about here. A stain that just doesn't go away. You can't wash it away. Okay. <clears throat> what he means by it here, the picture, is that it's, it's a picture of the moral stain of sin. Okay, that we can't wash away. No matter what, you, you could do all, you could go find out all the laws in the Bible, Old and New Testament, and keep everything, you still, you cannot wash that stain away. A wrinkle is an imperfection on the skin that's due to age. What, when he puts these two together, what he's talking about is total depravity. That you, inside and outside, you're stained or wrinkled, you're not perfect, you're a long ways from that. You know, because we were born totally depraved. That doesn't mean we're as bad as we could be. That means we're corrupt in every part of our nature, inside and out, right? And so, <clears throat> hold on to that, that picture of total depravity for just a minute, okay? Now, when you think about that, those moral stains, those wrinkles, you know, you watch, you know, TV and... Commercials come on and, you know, you have these products that, you know, get rid of wrinkles. And you just race them right away. You just rub this on, they're gone. Yeah, right. Okay. 
you can't, I mean, if you have a real wrinkle, it's not going away, right? You just, they're just going to multiply, right? <clears throat> these, these spots, you can't wash them away. The moral stain of sin can't be washed away. That ritual bridal bath could not wash those things away. So the thing, those, those moral stains, you know, the ritual, that bath, it can't wash those away. You know, baptism can't wash them away. But the gospel can. That's what we're talking about. The washing of water by the Word. You know, it's the Word of God in the gospel that washes away our sins, both initially when we come to Christ and then those sins that we've committed even after Him, after, after coming to Him. The gospel can wash those That'd be even way better than, you know, miracle product that can get bloodstains out of your clothes. You know, that can truly get rid of all your wrinkles. This is way better than that. When Jesus is done making his bride ready, there will not be one stain, <clears throat> one stain or one wrinkle left. And, and, you know, those of us who are, you know... Getting closer to graduation day, you know, we're like, okay, yeah, get rid of those those wrinkles, right? But no, there, there won't be any of that left at all. The way he words this in Greek is like, he says it in the singular, there won't even be one among the whole church. There won't be one stain, there won't be one wrinkle. And then he's like, well, if I missed anything, I love Paul, you know, it's kind of like in Romans 8, you know, or any such thing, you know. So if I miss something, I'll throw in this catch-all. Anything that, that qualifies as an imperfection, you know, moral, it, it'll be gone. Okay, so back to our uh, slide showing the structure. <clears throat> Christ loved the church. Why? That he might set her apart. Why? Well, first, we just looked at that he might present her glorious. And then now, second, that she would fully share his character. That she would fully share his character. And so that's our third point. Christ sets her apart so that she will fully manifest his character. Verse 27 again. <clears throat> that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. So at the end of that first clause that we were looking at in verse 27, where he talks about the spot and wrinkle, you know, that was negative. Okay, so there won't be any of those things. He's saying it negatively. Now he's saying he's talking positively. Okay, so it's not just that you won't have those things, but you will be holy and blameless, you see. So he's giving it our, what does it mean for her to be glorious? He's saying it positively. Holy is related to the word sanctify that we saw in verse 26. Holy reflects God's character. The church will fully share His character. You see, remember that whole idea of being set apart. But as we are set apart to God, individually and corporately, we take on His character. We adopt His character, right? Because we're being set apart to Him. And we have to be. We have to become like Him. That's the goal of the Christian life, to become like Christ. Blameless, that word, is the absence of any defects. And so, you, know, you think about, um, you know, we all have some sort of imperfections, right? In our, in our skin, our face, whatever. What he's saying is it would be like looking at someone and it's like perfect. I mean, perfect, perfect, Right? That's what the church will be like. You know, it, and, and it's not only that there won't be any flaws, any imperfections, but she'll be holy. And you put those two together, holy and blameless. You remember we put spot and wrinkle together, it was total depravity. Okay, But now, when Christ is done with us, you put together holy and blameless, total moral Perfection and moral. I don't mean like just you know having good morals. I mean in the sense of spiritual, right? Total moral, spiritual perfection. It's that 
<clears throat> the total set-apartness. So that as we have been set apart to God, now we are fully like Him, at least in all the ways we can. You know, we're not going to be, you know, infinite like He is. But <clears throat> in all of the what we call the, the moral character traits, we're going to be like Him fully. What's going on there is it'll be the full outworking, the full accomplishment of regeneration being made new. We talked about, remember, in Ephesians 2, He made us alive together with Christ. So when that work is fully accomplished in us individually and us corporately. So all of those touch points between us. When he's finished his work of cleansing, his church throughout all the ages, she will be totally made new. And that is how he can change something that for us in this life can't be changed. We will be a pure virgin. That's the love of Christ, folks. That's the love with which He loves us. A love that one day we really will be like Him. You know, we talk about, oh, you know, heaven will be so wonderful because, you know, I won't be able to sin anymore. Because that's true and that's wonderful. But it goes far beyond that. When we look at the beauty of our Savior, we see Him in all of His glory. How will we tremble when we realize that He looks at us because He's presenting us to Himself as glorious, holy, blameless? And you say, wow. And there will be a whole another reason to worship Him for all eternity. Because He has made us beautiful as He is in perfect holiness. In love, Christ pursues our sanctification. Let us submit to His purifying love that it might sanctify us and sanctify our church. One day in the future, Christ's work will be complete and will share His holy character. There's great hope for us, brothers and sisters. I know this life right now, it, we break our own hearts, you know, by the sins we commit. But we have hope because of what we shall be. He will finish His work. And He will make us holy. As we come to the table, think about this. Christ died to make us holy. He... he did that so he could set us apart to himself. And the Lord's Supper, as 1 Corinthians 11 reminds us, it's a time to examine our hearts, to examine our lives, even to examine our interactions with each other. There are times we have to confess our sins to one another. We have to turn from our sins. That's repentance. And a part of that repentance is turning to holiness. Let us think about what Christ is doing in us individually and as a church in particular. How His cross is sanctifying His church. Meditate on that.